Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with the people who are doing interesting things in pathology and related fields. My guest today is Dr. Constantine Kanakis. Dr. Kanakis is a first-year pathology resident and also previously worked 10 years as a medical laboratory scientist. Today on the show, we'll hear about his work in public health, and we'll hear about his recent TEDx talk, his work on the ASCP blog, and his recent PathCast on COVID-19 testing in the laboratory. Now here's Dr. Constantine Kanakis. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with your background as a medical laboratory scientist. You worked for a number of years as a as a medical laboratory scientist before going to medical school. And then you also worked for a while as an EMT. Uh, which, which one came first, actually? They kind of started at the same time. The EMT was a very short-lived chapter during college. Okay. Uh, but I learned a lot. And uh, the medical laboratory scientist one kind of took over for a while, like you said, lasted almost 10 years for medical school. Was it always the plan then to work as a as a medical laboratory scientist for a while and then go to medis- medical school or did that kind of come to you later? It, it kind of came to me later. Uh, the original plan, like 99% of people that do molecular biology or biology in college was to go to med school. But, you know, I sure. didn't know what that looked like yet. Uh, you see a white coat in your future, but you don't know what you're doing. Um, so I actually kind of stumbled into medical laboratory scientists or sciences uh, as a working kind of career. I worked through college. So I started in a blood bank uh, at a local hospital in Chicago and kind of worked and got my feet in the field, as it were, and kind of just kind of kept going. So it decided for me that that was going to be the career for me. Okay. And and while you were working in the lab, did you have a favorite kind of specialty or department? So way back when in 2007, I think I was just like an assistant tech uh, in a blood bank. Okay. And since then, blood bank and then hematology was my next step. And then I just did a little bit of everything. But those two first ones have been my absolute favorites since then. So transfusion and hematology are like my favorite things. And then once you uh, went to medical school, did you right away know you wanted to go to, into pathology? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was one of the few people that, you know, know what they want to do right at day one. Uh, and one of the even fewer people that actually choose pathology. So I was in a small group of people. I've I've heard from other uh, pathologists that when they sort of make that decision, a lot of people say, you know, you sure you want to do that work in the lab, you're so good with patients and people. Did you hear that, that kind of thing? Oh gosh, every day. I heard it for really? years. Oh, absolutely. Clinicals was actually my favorite part of med school. You know, getting to do patient interaction and and real hands-on stuff is kind of where I thrive. Uh, I like being outside of a classroom more than being in one. But um, you you hear that a lot, especially if you're talking to people and having fun talking to patients and doing that stuff. That path is not the right choice. I I bet a lot of other people hear this in like radiology or some other stuff too, but it's, it's a misconception. Yeah. It seems like, and we'll get into some of this stuff later, but it seems like you've been doing some things to sort of keep that patient interaction as as part of your career. I definitely try. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Did you feel like having spent 10 years in the lab that you had sort of an advantage uh, going into pathology? Like you knew, kind of knew what was happening 
more more so than other people? I felt, yeah, I'll just say yes first, but I, I felt a little more at advantage when it came to residency interview season. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a little bit of background that I was kind of familiar with when it came to, you know, the nuts and bolts in the classroom of medical school. Like I knew the language of lab tests and things like that already. So that was that right. was all good. But then once it came to actually interviewing for spots, uh, I had 10 years of experience being a member of that you know, world, which kind of puts you in a separate category. Sure, sure. And now you're yeah. you're just about to start residency. Is that is that right? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Uh, July 1st, I start uh, at Loyola Medicine here in Chicago. Nice. That's great. Thanks. You've been pretty involved in things like public health and community outreach. Mm-hmm. And it seems like early on you started doing those kind of things. Why, why is that important to you to do? Uh, it's important for me because I don't think enough people are doing it. Today, nowadays, is a great example of what happens when you don't prepare for stuff like viral epidemics. but. Uh, yep. you know, pathology is a great place for the intersection of public health and lab data to sort of dictate the way we prepare and address public health uh, stuff. So um, I thought it was really important to get involved as early as I could. And I had an opportunity to do that with Zika when I was in St. Martin, which kind of right. changed my narrative completely. Uh, can you can you talk about that experience uh, in, in St. Martin? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, so I went to med school at American University of the Caribbean in St. Martin. Uh, the first two years of that, uh, you spend in that island country. The second two years, I spent back in New York City doing clinical rotations. Okay. During those first two years, I was really close to the uh, Zika uh, outbreak that started kind of in the Brazil, northeastern Brazil area and kind of moved up. Um, so I had an opportunity to work with a service learning kind of elective course. Uh, alongside my regular, like, you know, basic sciences. Mm-hmm. And we all proposed different projects, uh, somewhere about diabetes, somewhere about, you know, fitness and health, somewhere about obesity. I proposed to do a public health uh, stint with uh, Zika, kind of doing education and stuff, addressing mosquito borne viruses. Since it's endemic both to the area and has like widespread implications for a lot of places in the world. Right. If you think about things like, malaria, Zika, encephalitis, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So it kind of married uh, two projects that were kind of ongoing. I got really lucky that the school did this big partnership with the local Ministry of Health. And at the same time, the school was operating this uh, immunology seroprevalence study. They were trying to collect data on uh, people infected with Zika. Okay. So I kind of straddled both projects and I wrote... You know, SOPs for the lab part of the testing. I was inspecting the manufacturer's inserts, making sure people were doing testing right, showing them how to do the mat, like the proper protocols for testing and ELISAs. And on the other hand, I was leading the public health charge of people uh, creating community partnerships, uh, reaching out with local uh, ministry officials, and going out and really assessing and addressing, collecting information about uh, awareness, education, and sort of behavioral change to address and mitigate uh, mosquito-borne viruses. It was so successful. Uh, I'll add a note that the at the government of St. Martin adopted it as their policy, uh, which oh, wow. I was so proud of. Yeah. yeah. And they presented it in the 2016 or 2017 Global Health Security Agenda in Miami. So this became like a legitimate <laughs> endeavor, uh, all from the lens of pathology and public health. Wow. That's, that's impressive. Um, yeah. Was this... Doing a project like this, was that required uh, by your program 
or was that something None of extra? This was required. Yeah, this was okay. all the extra. Absolutely. If if this was mandatory in med schools, doctors would be a completely different group of people uh, around the country, around sure. the world. I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That that's interesting. Uh, what was sort of a day to day? I mean, were you mostly in the lab working with with educating the lab workers there, or were you kind of out in the field? What what was kind of a day to day? Yeah. So the day to day when I wasn't in class uh, or doing regular med school stuff, right. um, I would visit the lab just for the sake of you know updating SOPs and making sure stuff was getting done there. There was a, a virologist, microbiology PhD that was heading up that. Uh, section as faculty. So I was just kind of visiting for my like experience and input. I was really spending a majority, a large, vast majority of my time on the public health uh, side doing stuff in the field. Okay. I want to back, back up for a second. Um, sure. You, during your time, because you're also a CAP inspector here. I am. I am a certified CAP inspector. Okay. Yeah. Now, did you start doing that while you were working as a medical laboratory scientist? No, I actually added, yeah, much later. It was actually during my clinicals. Uh, I added uh, the cert for cap inspector. You can do it online while I was in finishing clinicals in New York City, just in case there were any uh, inspections I could go on in, you know, the breaks between rotations and stuff. Okay. I was just wondering because it sounded like what you were doing there in St. Martin kind of it was similar to really inspecting a lab and helping it to It kind of inspired it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And then the TEDx talk that you did, was that during medical school? I was a little after med school. Uh, after. I was okay. I was done with everything. Um, I had matriculated. All my stuff was finished. And it was like just before graduating. But after I had my last day, I was in this gray zone. So I had to do something. Gotcha. Okay. And the, that, the title of that was Unrecognizable Medicine. Yeah. So how you mentioned that, you know, you had to do something. Is that how you kind of got involved with TEDx and um, and then how did you decide on this topic? So I got involved with this uh, by invitation. Uh, some okay. faculty and some folks who knew you know my speeches and presentations back in St. Martin actually asked me to come back to give this talk. It was organized by a group of students who had affiliations with the TED folks um, and through this TEDx event. It was after Hurricane Irma. So the theme was about resilience Mm -hmm. and they wanted a collection of different stories uh, from abstract to direct about how resilience is an important human value and stuff. So they asked me to give any talk I wanted to, as long as I address resilience. So I thought, what would be the most helpful to people there? You know, people, the vast majority of people listening to this would be medical students. So I came up with the topic unrecognizable medicine based on, a small fact I heard uh, once where the volume, uh, the depth and breadth of medical knowledge will double uh, every 73 days as opposed to 10 years ago, uh, or 1950 rather, where it will double every 10 years. So that was a jarring statistic to me. So I was thinking about how can I uh, assure people that they're going to be okay in this rising like tsunami of uh, medical information as they graduate. So you sort of broke the talk into like three sort of categories. There was tools, skills, and strengths. Yeah. And you went, went through the, the tools, some like new technologies and things that are coming out. Um, you mentioned liquid biopsy. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? What is that? How does it work? Sure. 
when you think of biopsy, you think of traditional like tissue section, right? Uh, yeah. People go in, they take a section of lung, liver, kidney, and they might, you know, process it, histotechnology, look at it on a microscope, and then diagnose it based on what they find. Liquid biopsies are a little different. It's a kind of new thinking where you can just take a sample of blood and you look for fragments of mutations that you know exist in certain uh, types of cancers or tumors. You can look for small amounts of circulating tumor cells. You can look for a whole variety of proteins and things that will clue you into some kind of pathologic process going on in the body without ever actually going in with a large bore needle or a knife. So it's it's a very different approach to the same information. Do you think that has the potential to replace most, you know, standard tissue biopsies that, that occur these days? I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think mm -hmm. maybe one day we will. Uh, things, especially I talked about, you know, uh, hematology, transfusion medicine, hematology, especially hemopath moves every day closer and closer to the side of molecular diagnostics and away from uh, morphology stuff, but you still need that morphology stuff. You really do. And kidney right. uh, pathologists will always need their their slides. And same for every section of anatomic pathology. It's important. But um, as we move to more digital, you know, pathology tools and techniques, we may uh, rely more on liquid biopsies than we have previously. And who knows what the future holds? Sure. Something else you mentioned in the talk, you kind of uh, like you mentioned biochemistry and how that was sort of the crossover of fields, like the, the crossover of biology and chemistry. And it, you know, two people that were working in separate labs came, suddenly decided to talk to each other and they created a new field. Yeah. And then you mentioned a couple other interesting things. You said uh, space medicine. Yeah, I did. And I think astropathology. Yeah. Yeah. Those are real. Those are real. How do you. <laughs> what are these? Um, How interesting. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the collaborative disciplines came from a, a talk I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson give. It was one of his star talk topics. And he just kind of went off the cuff okay. and, and combined these different things. So I, I was fascinated by that topic generally. And when I was putting together the, the medical material for the TED Talk, I found um, – well, actually, when I was looking for rotations myself, I found space medicine. You can actually do this in NASA, uh, in Texas, uh, if you if you get lucky enough to do space medicine as a rotation. It's a real thing. Aeronautical and space medicine address a whole host of new challenges that patients and people will be facing as we consider more and more space travel for longer amounts of time and stuff. That's really fascinating. But I think um, you had a recent interview with uh, Michael Schubert from The Pathologist, and they had an article yes. in there. Yeah from a veterinary pathologist who actually was an astronaut who went to space and uh <laughs> i think it was called astropathology um right. he basically you know uh, addressed this topic of one health and he's a veterinary pathologist but he's in space considering the implications of how space will affect medicine as as this technology moves us forward into the future so as things develop uh and more and different types of people collaborate on different types of projects. You'll see different kinds of interdisciplinary things happening. But yeah, space medicine is real. Astropathology is real. I can't wait to see what else is coming up. <laughs> yeah, me too. You know, I've always, they talk about, you know, we're going to be going to Mars, you know, sometime in the near future now and whatever. And I always thought that that'd be great to go. But, you know, I'm a PA. What kind of skills do I have that they would need? But, you know, now with space medicine and astropathology, maybe there would be a need for 
for a PA on Mars. I, the field of medical laboratory science and pathology is the most like dynamic and widely applicable thing you can imagine. It's fascinating to see where people work and what they do with this degree. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to the uh, the seventy three day thing. So. You, you're saying that medical knowledge doubles every 73 days. Yeah. The the statistic officially, I think I remember now, was if you got your medical degree or science degree in 1950, you could expect all of medical knowledge to double in 50 years. If you get your medical degree uh, in 2020, you can expect all the volume of medical knowledge to double in 73 days. That seems overwhelming. How? Yeah. So how, how are we supposed to keep up with that? So... I think it's two things. I think one is instead of, you know, the the Quin the Quincy model of medicine from the fifties or so, like that you can't right. know everything anymore. You can't just walk around being this like encyclopedia of uh diseases or robins or whatever. Uh you have to sort of speak a new language of medicine. And as things change, you always have to be able to read a paper. Uh, decide if it's good or bad, commit it to knowledge or throw it away. It has to be some kind of quick, you know, new language you speak with uh, colleagues in the same field. The second part of that is uh, medicine is sort of a, a paradox. Um, I was asked to give the student charge at my graduation uh, recently, and I talked about medicine as a paradox where on the one hand, we're expected to know everything, uh, but on the other hand, uh, we're expected to practice as if nothing is certain. You know, patients want answers right. and they want uh, hope and reliability and accountability. But on the other hand, we have to translate that tsunami of medical knowledge into something that is easily accessible and easily digestible. And people in medical laboratory science and especially pathologists are now, you know, the, the representatives of the purest truth in science and medicine. So it's it's a new responsibility. we have. So it sounds like there's going to be a pretty big paradigm shift coming in the near future. I think so. Instead of memorizing facts, we're going to have to speak a new language. You are a pretty frequent poster on the, um, the ASCP blog, which is called Lab Blogatory. Right, Blogatory. It's a fun word, isn't it? Yeah. How long have you been doing that? I have been almost four years now. I think the first one was October 2016. Wow. I started okay. when I started the, the Zika project. Wow. All right. That's, that's interesting. And then many of your posts seem to focus on public health and, and new technologies like you were just talking about. Is that a big interest of yours? I, I, I would say so. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it's important to, to sort of stay the most up to date. Obviously, everybody in medicine wants to stay up to date, but you have to sort of really you know, consider all the different collaborations that you can do because it makes everybody's specialty stronger. I have posts that range from simple public health projects with a little bit of laboratory data to like getting into the nitty gritty details of like fifth generation troponins or how to validate, uh, you know, biofire tests or other multiplex uh, immunology tests at a hospital system. And what that means for uh, either public health and policy or how pathology interacts with cardiology in a separate hospital or whatever other kind of collaborations you can think of across uh, different disciplines. I think that's the most important thing. And that's why I like to stay at the forefront of public health and new tech. Do you ever get your feedback from the articles that you write? Mm -hmm. Some people uh, enjoy the departures from science. Uh, you know, 
you log on to a lot of professional websites or blogs in our field and they're just a, a case study, a paper, a slide, some references, you know, uh, right. Yeah. Ad infinitum. But uh, sometimes I write about trends in medicine like suicide and how they trickle down all the way to pathology as a specialty or how compassion is definitely a tool that should be included in everybody's uh, medical bag, regardless of what you practice. Um, I get emails about right. those people like those, but I also get emails about uh, the informative things like the fifth gen path. Uh, I'm sorry, fifth gen troponin. Um, people really enjoyed um, seeing that in action because I was lucky enough again to be in a situation where I was at a community hospital in New York City uh, running a brand new test with new ranges that nobody really kind of knows widespread yet. So, yeah, people seem to like them. I'll keep writing them until somebody says otherwise. Yeah, that's got to feel good to get that kind of feedback yeah. when people like what you're doing. One of your posts, you titled it 2020 Vision. So it was the beginning of this year. Mm -hmm. And you listed 20 exciting things on the horizon. Yeah. One thing you mentioned in there is graphic medicine. Yeah. What is that? Graphic medicine. It is something I recently encountered within the last like year or two. Basically, comic books for grown-ups in medicine <laughs> okay um using right. using visuals to kind of convey messages or teach uh or present educational materials or tell a narrative or a story whatever you want to to do you can do it with visuals as a vehicle to deliver the point um i actually tried my hand in doing this i started a little series called path doodles where i explain different specialties. Mm -hmm. uh, I have fun doing it. People like those a lot. Um, I think when you engage people with visual content, as you know, social media will tell you, people engage a lot more actively. So I think it's a good way to get a different type of engagement as far as what you're trying to present. It's also uh, great for different types of learning, and it also extends to patients. So if you're trying to educate patients, you know, we've relied on things like explaining images or histological slides or using 3d printing and those are all great but if you could have some sort of like easy to digest medical material that presents things in a narrative people will respond positively to it and i've read a couple books by uh some pretty good artists and, and authors in graphic medicine uh and they're fantastic it seems like there's a bit of a push in recent years for a pathologist to kind of come out of the lab and actually interact with patients directly. I'm ready, Dennis. Well, I think it's something like your, this graphic medicine would, would help with that. And so obviously you're you're in favor of doing this, of, of kind of coming out of the basement and getting out in the general public. Yeah, I think I think we have a we have a specific contribution uh, to medicine at large. You know, like the, the old fact is 70% of every patient's chart comes from the lab and like 90, virtually 100% of all cancer diagnoses come from us. So I think um, it's been an ongoing conversation for quite a few years to have a sort of uh, pathology clinic or pathology office hours where patients can come and, and ask what their path report means or what this means for, you know, second opinions or what they can do with this information. I think that's uh, a new, important and uh, something that should be talked about more. Sure. And I think that would affect you know children as well as students to you know get into the lab or you know into into pathology in general 
Oh yeah. Oh, the pipeline is dry. <laughs> yes. You know, everywhere from you know the medical side of pathology to having physicians in the labs to having you know medical laboratory scientists and technologists on the bench in the lab. There's such a drought of people coming into this profession because it's almost invisible. You know, I told right. you I've been doing something in this field since 2007, and people talk about it all the time. They've been talking about it since I joined. It's been uh, fascinating. But once I was in it, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. So I wish more people had exposure to it. And that's something I try to to do by engaging different disciplines and uh, talking to medical students and things like that. I think that's why you see a bit more sort of outreach from the pathology community. There's webinars and, oh, I don't know, podcasts. <laughs> and there's also, you were recently on PathCast. I was, yes. Yeah, which is run on uh, Facebook and YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, and you talked about COVID-19 testing in the laboratory. Yeah. How, how did, so how did you get involved in, in that? So in a roundabout way, I was actually collaborating with a colleague of mine from med school to just do these little um, quips on Twitter, you know, little videos to address the general population's questions about the virus from, you know, people who are in the field and can answer them. Uh, with mm -hmm. real information, because <laughs> that's that's a big problem nowadays. Um, a right. colleague of mine actually referred me to the folks that run the Pathcast series and said, "Hey, uh, maybe consider uh, him for one of the lectures." We talked. I talked about my ideas. They liked them, so they gave me a a spot. When I was in the actual lecture, it was fantastic. I had such a blast putting that information together, and because of that talk, I've been able to do. A handful of other things since then in different media engagements that have been fantastic. So the PathCast thing kind of catapulted a little bit of this uh, time before residency starts, which I've been really thankful for. That's a great series too. I've, I've watched a, a bunch of them. They're they're all really oh, they're fantastic. Quality. Yeah, I was yeah. honored to be included in that list of faculty. I, I can imagine <laughs> some big names, and 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 your your specific topic is interesting because like you said there's you need some real information and a lot of people are talking about lab testing for covid and yeah. there should be more testing and that's true but you can't just buy the test take it out of the box and start running it on patient samples no right way. There, no there's way. things there's things you have to do yeah and that's not something that that we usually hear about you mentioned the difference but there's a difference between verifying a test and validating a test mm -hmm. You talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you're absolutely right. It, none of these tests are plug and play. And even if they were, uh, let's say, point of care, you know, it still takes a laboratory to validate and verify them. So what are the differences? When you verify something, that assumes that it's already, you know, FDA approved or CAP waived or CLIA waived or, or ha it already has some sort of uh, stamp of approval that says this is statistically significant and you just have to meet these measures in your testing to make sure that you're okay. So if you can follow the uh, Betty Crocker recipe that comes with the test, you're okay. Validating is a whole beast of itself. Uh, anybody in med lab science knows that if you're validating a test, you're going to have to collect samples and samples and samples and run titers at different levels and look for interferences and do cross-instrument validations and you have to collect and collect and collect for days to prove statistically that you're test or method is you know valid, not only for accuracy and precision, because those are important uh, for 
sensitivity, specificity, and you know predictive value of the test, but also for patient safety. You know, if you're if you're doing if you're doing any of these tests, you have to have a result that means something to the our patient patient clinicians on you know the floors. I talked a lot about that in the pathcast when I did that. I think it was like around April 10th. There were only about 40, 37 tests that were uh, emergency approved by the FDA. I recently did another one, and there are almost 100. Uh, and, wow. Yeah, and only 13 of them are immunological tests. The rest are molecular, which makes sense because most of us were worried about diagnosing and proving stuff on the front end. But now we're starting to collect more and more public health data. But there are trends in all this stuff that need to get explained to people who don't know the nuts and bolts of testing. And it's it's quite a task. Sure, sure. And and some of it too, it's it's more than just, you know, who is positive and who isn't, but it it is the, the data itself too. Exactly. Um, I was recently doing a, a QA with Lifehacker magazine and they had uh, a bunch of lay people uh, just send in their questions, and everybody's interested in uh, if I get a test, can I go back to normal? Can I go back to work? Can I go outside without a mask? So interpreting those tests and telling people what results mean is the most important part. I wanted to ask you, so there are so many more uh, tests available now for, for COVID-19. Is that a result of the FDA emergency use authorization? Yeah. Yes, okay. yes. Well, so what what does that mean? It it waives some of the regulations, or what what happens there? So the FDA has a system uh, through which they can sort of fast track uh, testing provisions uh, in the cases of emergencies. This is declared an emergency, a health emergency, by um, right. you know Health and Human Services and, and above the FDA commissioner, and it comes down from the top. Um, once that. Uh, announcement is made, then the FDA commissioner has the authority to grant emergency use authorizations or EUAs licenses to different tests from different either hospitals or uh, commercial manufacturers who provide testing um, with less than normal, uh, let's say, quality restrictions that you would expect normally. Um, I don't want to say that they're all bad by saying less quality. I just want to stress that these are pushed quicker through the process than traditional measures. They did the same thing with okay. Zika. They did the same thing with Ebola. Um, not to the same extent, but the same process holds true. And the process does work. It's up to the labs to ensure the safety and quality stuff when they get it down the pipeline. Um, right. It's good to have this explosion of tests, but... It was a little, you know, unfortunately late in the game. Uh, public health labs were the first ones to start doing the tests, and then private labs and academic hospitals started doing their own. Um, it also raises the question of laboratory-developed tests and how wide we can use those. If Hospital A develops a test on its own, can you use it across town at Hospital B? That's a little more complicated. So regulatory oh, issues sure. and, and, and the availability of these resources have like affected our healthcare delivery system, but that's a whole separate podcast, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you mentioned some of the regulatory things in your, in your pathcast uh, talk. Yeah. Do you, do you think, is there something we can learn as, as laboratory professionals? Is there something we can learn from what's happened with this? Yeah. As far as um, the regulatory things? So I think there are 
at least two very important things that we've already learned from this uh, pandemic with response to testing and regulatory issues. Um, professional societies like College of American Pathology and especially the American Society for Clinical Pathology, ASCP, they they have lobbied and pressed, you know, the White House and uh, FDA and others to sort of have a, a task force and a plan based on quality and safety measures. Um, that's one thing. These professional societies, you know, lobbying our government for the appropriate response uh, as far as testing is concerned. But on the other hand, uh -huh. um, you'll see responses from, uh, again, folks like the ASCP addressing issues like waiving licensure requirements in different states when there's shortages. It's important to maintain uh, quality. You can't just have anybody working in a lab. I'm sure you know. Right. I'm sure everybody yes. listening knows. But it's important to make sure that that's preserved and protected. So yes. um, those two things are very important. And I think will grow as a conversation post-pandemic uh, peaks, I hope at least. Right. Yeah, I feel like once this is all over, wh whenever that happens to be, there will be a lot to, to talk about and discuss and yeah. figure out still Yeah. after it's all done. Yeah. All right. This has been great. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you wanted to mention? <laughs> um, you mean talk about myself for another 40 minutes? No, I'm okay. I think it's good. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for being here today. This was really fantastic. I really appreciate you having me. Big thanks to Dr. Constantine Kanakis. And make sure you check out the show notes for this episode. You can find links to all of the things we talked about today. You can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path. And if you like this episode, make sure you share it with someone. And together, let's help inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. Mm -hmm.